Hello and welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia podcast, the podcast where we look at technical and legal issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name is Jacqueline Smith and I'm one of the directors of the Society. In this episode, I'm joined by three of my fellow directors, Matthew Bell, Co-Director of Studies for Construction Law at the Melbourne Law School, Dr Sean Brady, Director of Brady Haywood, and Lena Chan, Barrister at Three Wentworth Chambers. In this discussion, Matthew, Lena and Sean focus on the security of payment legislation in Australia, particularly the lack of harmonisation of these laws across the country and some of the problems that they can cause on a practical level for people working in the construction industry. Listeners might be particularly interested in this topic at the moment, given that John Murray is currently undertaking a national review of the security of payment legislation, producing a report to, to government later in the year. We'll now cross directly to Matthew, Sean and Lena discussing this. off our discussion today is Matthew Bell. So when I started listening to podcasts a little while ago, uh, I was mostly doing it when I was hanging out the clothes or doing the vacuuming or cleaning out the rabbit and those types of things. And, and the ones that really made me interested were those which sort of taught me some things. And so when I've been following the Society of Construction Law Australia's podcast, which I've been really enjoying, I wondered whether there might be any contribution that I could make by way of the legal issues in construction law. So, my Before name is, you get there, what, what yeah, podcast did you like? I like all sorts of podcasts, and actually sometimes I just pick them randomly. My favourite is probably Stuff You Should Know, because yep, it's I such a generalist yep. one, yeah. Uh, and they've just got this very easy way of chatting with each other and just drawing things out. But I'll listen to pretty much anything. And I mm-hmm. think that there are probably a lot of people out there who just will listen to anything. And probably, if you're listening to this one, you're that sort of person. I'm very lucky. Hopefully so. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this one is about construction law. And if you're new to construction law, and if you're a person in the construction industry listening to this, you might be saying, well, what is construction law? And... From our point of view as construction lawyers, and that's what I've been for the best part of the last 20 years, uh, from our point of view as construction lawyers, there are all sorts of laws out there and people who interact with the built environment every day, whether you're a developer, you know about the laws of supply and demand. If you're an engineer, hopefully, you know all about the laws of physics to make sure that our, our bridges stay up. But what then is construction law itself? Well, from a lawyer's point of view, we say that there's probably three main sources of that type of of law. And the first is case law, that is judge-made law, and a lot of our focus is on what the judges hand down. The second is regulations, which are put out by parliaments, statutes and regulations and so forth. Uh, But then there's a third one, which is particularly interesting, I think, in our area of construction law, which is what we as academics would call regulatory norms, that is, things which within the industry have taken on a cultural life of their own, but now get uh, documented through, for example, standard forms of contract, like the ones which are put out by... Uh, Standards Australia and others. So with those three sources of law, there's plenty of things for us to get our teeth into as lawyers. But I guess in terms of the Society of Construction Law and the Society of Construction Lawyers that was set up in Australia getting on for seven years ago now, the question is, is this the Society of Construction Lawyers? The answer to that is no, and quite deliberately so. So what is it about? To my mind, it's all about building bridges. It's about building bridges between lawyers and that type of law and 
the other people who get involved with construction and that's pretty much all of us whether we are developers or a government department or we're somebody who lives in a building we're most likely to get involved with construction law one way or another. Now of course from most of our point of view buildings just stand up and hopefully we won't have any need to know about construction law at all but with recent developments things happening in the news we've had the collapse of some high-profile building companies uh, building homes here in Victoria recently. We're in the same week where there's been the terrible cyclone in North Queensland, which has, yeah. of course, put into uh, put into uh, relief all of the building regulations and how buildings stand together. All of those things mean that we're suddenly taking notice of what construction laws are. So we thought in this podcast. Uh, this would be a bit of an opportunity to talk about what construction law looks like to us at the moment and, and how we see our role as construction lawyers. But we're particularly lucky on the Society of Construction Law uh, to have not just members but also directors on our board who have that direct construction knowledge. So very glad we've got you today with us. Uh, Dr Sean Brady is one of our directors as a forensic and structural engineer. Thank you, Matthew. When you, when you said and I agree with you that the point of the society of construction law is not really to, it is to look at construction law, but particularly how it interacts with the other parts of the construction industry. Uh, and I was really curious, where do you think the law does that really well, and where do you think it does it really badly? You think badly security of payment? To me, yes. security of payment is a very good example of where uh, something that should be a very simple solution can be made extremely complicated. Yes. Yeah. So how does that happen? How does it happen? Yeah. So, so I very rarely get involved in security payments, so to me it's a bit of a mystery, as it probably is to some of our listeners. So, so why does it get complicated? Okay, so just to say we're looking at security of payment, which is, from a lot of people's perspective now, a bit of a car crash. Uh, we can sort of make our way back through seeing everything that's happened of when the car has left the garage at home and where the other cars have come from and all that sort of thing so that we've ended up in this intersection and unfortunately they've collided if that's what in fact security of payment is today. So the cars leaving the garage are really a variation on a theme which comes through in, in a lot of construction regulation in that second area that I was talking about before. So the second area being legislative or statutory regulation in this country, in Australia, we effectively have eight different state and territory based uh, approaches to security of payment. But we also have a ninth jurisdiction in this country being the Commonwealth of Australia as well. So when um, Ian Bailey and I uh, wrote the third edition of Construction Law in Australia, which Lena, you contributed to as well. We Chapter 11. Indeed. But, but when, we, when we wrote that book, we put on the cover uh, these nine swinging cranes and deliberately asked the designers to make sure that those cranes were close enough that they might oversail if you're lucky but also might collide with each other from time to time. So a lot of what we deal with in, in construction law in this country, and this is really a lawyer's perspective in trying to help our clients who are operating across state and territory borders who are operating uh, across the country. A lot of what we have to deal with is a very boring aspect of our constitution, which is section 51 of the Australian Federal Constitution, which 
as we all very well know from that great film, The Castle, uh, is the thing that makes the division of legislative powers between the states and territories and, and the Commonwealth. So effectively, there is nothing in but Section tell us, 51... tell us what 51 says, just for that. So Section 51 says yes. that there are certain, certain grounds that the Commonwealth Parliament may make laws about. There's only two that yes, only yes. the Commonwealth uh, can make laws about. They're the, the seat of government, which of course we know is in Canberra, so they did a great job with that one, uh, but also the Australian public service. But everything else is under a constitutional system at least, shared with the states. But if things aren't within those 30-odd heads of power in Section yes. 51, the Commonwealth can't make laws about it unless they've got an agreement with the states, which has happened sometimes, as with industrial relations, or a High Court decision has decided that there should be oh, I see an accretion. Where you're going. Yeah. So so there's there's no head of power in there, Lena. So are you are you trying to say that because we don't have a head of power that allows the Commonwealth to legis legislate on security of payment, we've ended up with eight different systems. It's inevitable, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And so and they don't marry up with each other, so depending on which jurisdiction you're in, you have to grapple with the laws that are particular to that state or territory. Precisely. And and I think because a lot of what we do in our teaching program is we bring in uh, people from around the world and they tell us about the situation in their own country and they ask about what is construction law, uh, what's the Australian construction law. Well, we can't say uh, what the Australian construction law situation is in many cases. There's the Victorian situation, New South Wales, Western Australian and so forth. Yes. When it comes to these issues, that aren't dealt with in Section 51 of the Constitution. So why don't you give us an example, one example of how, for example, the security of payment system differs between New South Wales and Victoria, and just one example so our viewers can get right. a flavour of they're, exactly they're what not, we're talking they're about. They're not viewers, they're listeners. Sorry, listeners. This is what our <laughs> listeners can deal with. Okay, so back in the early 1850s, uh, the, the colony of Victoria separated from New South Wales and... That was mostly done with the borderline being the Murray River. And so New South Wales crossed the river in, say, Moama, the town of Moama. They're subject to the New South Wales Security of Payment legislation in Victoria, in Echuca. It's subject to the Victorian Security of Payment legislation. Now, there are many ways in which they differ, but probably the most boring in some ways until you come a crop, cropper with it is uh, the definition of business days. So in Victoria, there's no blackout period uh, between Christmas and New Year for when the time runs right. for an adjudication, whereas in New South Wales... There is. Yeah. Because we New take our holidays seriously. Absolutely, you That's do. Right. And in fact, it's been extended further in Queensland and in, in, in Western Australia. So that, that's a good example of where, under the Victorian regime, you yes. could well uh, come back when you've reopened your site in, in January and find that you And find that you're... You've been time barred because right. you've missed the adjudication which came in. Is Victoria the only place that does that? And a couple of others, but it's gradually been modified over time. And this is another feature of our, and we're just using security payment as an example, but it's another feature of it that every state legislature can and does fiddle with their own local uh, security payment legislation to respond to local conditions. And so when you cross the Murray River or when you go across the Nullarbor or, heaven forfend, you go from uh, Melbourne across Bass Strait to Tasmania, you're going to find quite a different 
uh, regime there. Now, look for most for most people. But, how, most but how, is yeah. that, how is that reflective of uh, of changing situations on the ground? How why yeah is how has this developed? How, how why have we got different things going in different directions? Surely the situation on the ground in Victoria and New South Wales really isn't that different in terms of the needs of the system that has to be in place. Have I got that right, or am I? Well, you'd have to ask: Is there much difference if you are building something on the north or the south side of the Murray River in a technical sense, in a commercial sense? And I think the answer to that has to be no. There's not much difference. Yeah, it's certainly no. not in an engineering sense. Yeah, I mean, there might be slightly different ground conditions. I don't know, but in much the same way as there can be different ground conditions on one side of the Yarra River yeah, compared absolutely. to the northern But side. how have the courts dealt with It's very unfair, isn't it? I mean, because if you're really clever or sneaky, you would issue your payment claims on Christmas Eve. Yeah. And then you'd go away on your 10-day break and come back and find yourself time-barred. How, do the, how have the Victorian courts dealt with this? There's been many, many cases uh, come before the Victorian courts on security of payment. I'm not aware of any that have dealt directly with this this issue of what we call the ambush claim yes. at Christmas time, it's actually pretty open and shut. If you've missed uh, the deadline, because you know, this is one area where the legislation is very clear, if you've missed the deadline because of the timing going against you, there's very little you can do about it. And how many times has that happened to people? Is, is there any well-known situations out there where people have been ambushed successfully over Christmas? And has it just been people have learned their lessons so harshly that this, this, it's not an issue anymore because people just work through Christmas to, to survive it? Again, from my point of view as an observer, I can only say two things. The first is, as a practitioner, I knew when I was working in London particularly that we would almost have to anticipate that we wouldn't be getting our Christmas holidays as lawyers uh, because most likely there would be claims coming in at that time. The UK approach to this is similar to the Victorian approach. But um, what people tell me through the society and, and other places is it's really quite common to have to pull pack people back in, uh, so pull back people back in to, to the office. And I don't just mean lawyers, of course, everybody coming back to site during that Christmas period but if, uh, to work out how to respond to a payment claim. But if service is affected on the building company or the subby, I guess that means they can't go on holidays either. I mean, they always have to have someone manning it because how else would you know that you've been served? Well, that's right. How, how would you know that you've been served? Well, you have to be looking out for the facts and, and other ways. I believe even it's possible to serve people according to uh, social media. So I guess, I guess the next question is, if, if there is a problem, if there's a problem with disparity of approaches, and it does, there does seem to be a problem, and at the very least it's inefficient for construction people to have to have their lawyers uh, drafting clauses, alerting them to the differences around the country and so forth. The next question then is what, if anything, should be done about it? And, and just recently, since Christmas of 2016, uh, there does seem to be some real hope uh, that there might be now some uh, harmonisation of the security payment legislation in Australia. Uh, where does that come from? Because I know for years in the Society of Construction Law we've talked about the importance and how good harmonisation would be, but also talked about what it, it really felt like a complete pipe dream. And then sort of out of nowhere, 
well, to me, somewhere out of nowhere, suddenly this this opportunity seems to present itself. How did that come about? So we went to a federal election last year on a double dissolution, which is, of course, a very significant thing constitutionally and practically. And that double dissolution was really based upon the government wanting to get through its bills to reinstate the Australian Building and Construction Commission, which, of course, has been a very big issue uh, for the last 10 years or more uh, in Australian politics. As part of the discussions and the negotiations around the passage of that bill, which happened at the end of November in 2016, there was an agreement by the government to include provisions which are to look at security of payment around the country, including the establishment of a working group, which we understand uh, we'll find out the membership and exactly what that's going to be doing uh, very shortly. But more importantly, um, the government, quite soon after that, announced that there was going to be a review and it was to be led by uh, Mr John Murray AM. And as we speak now, at the end of March in 2017, that review is very much getting underway with a view to producing a report uh, to the government by the end of 2017. Now, we know that uh, Mr Murray is consulting very widely uh, in relation to what those recommendations might be, and we look forward uh, in the society, and I'm sure many industry organisations look forward also to seeing what those recommendations might ultimately be. What would you like them to be? Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not just saying this because uh, you come from a place which values simplicity in adjudication legislation, Sean. Uh, but I have to say I'm a large and very grateful fan of the Irish approach to security of payment legislation. Uh, the Irish Act runs to around about 15 pages and does most of what it needs to do without being overcomplicated, whereas the Victorian Act runs to about 75 pages at the moment as immensely complicated as you can see from the case law on the Victorian legislation. So I guess my, my big suggestion, which is an odd thing for a legal academic to say because usually we value uh, complexity and subtlety, my, my big suggestion is really to say, well, what, what does this legislation need to do? What exactly is the nut that it's trying to crack? And in a way, it's, it's a very simple thing, which is, as the Senate Economics References Committee said in December 2015, if somebody's done work, they should get paid for it. Mm -hmm. So it seems like a simple thing, but how legally you do that is, is a different matter. Yeah. It's how, it, isn't, it, isn't it that if somebody's done work, they should get paid for it? After, after giving the principal an opportunity to comment on the claim, in a nutshell, is what they're trying to achieve. Yeah. So, in, in, a, in a sense, security of payment has always been a misnomer, even though it it's forms part of the most of the legislation's names. Uh, really, what it's trying to do is to give people a right to have their payment claim assessed uh, and, and then really try to stop the situation where work has been done and a claim is, is just ignored. Or put aside. I'm just really. I mean, I don't deal with terms for payment or any of this stuff. But what what's your top three ways that the simplicity of the intention of that has been essentially hijacked? If you off the top of your head, what, what what do you think of the three ways? Why are we why are we in the situation we are? What are the top three reasons why we are where we are? And we've lost that simplicity. Yeah, well, I 
I can think of I can think of a couple. Um, the first is that the golden rule applies, as always. If you've got the gold, you tend to make the rules. And so in this situation, and the default situation within the construction industry, not just in Australia but around the world, is if you are somebody who's had work done for you and you've got the money in your pocket, it has been the case that the other person who's done the work has to somehow get that out of your pocket. So that there's, that's the natural tendency. And there are a lot of ways in which loopholes and technicalities within the law, and that's why I say it should be as simple as possible, uh, technicalities within the law will allow you to resist payment. And I have to say that as lawyers we've become very creative on behalf of our clients where they don't want to pay or can't pay to resist what is otherwise a fairly simple proposition for payment uh, within the security of payment legislation. So that, that's, that's one aspect of it. The, the other aspect as to why it hasn't worked is because it can't deal with every possible situation. And one of mm -hmm. the largest situations is, of course, where a, a company simply can't pay for whatever reason. It's suffering um, the throes of insolvency or has got other problems down the contracting chain. So this legislation cannot solve every problem. There are many other aspects to it as well, but it can crack a fairly simple nut. I mean, it was only ever intended to keep cash flow going, subject exactly. to final determination, but now it seems to be generally the final say. And why is that? Isn't it because of the cost? I mean, the cost yeah. of litigating, it's, it's cost of construction litigation now is so prohibitive that really only the really huge companies can afford it. And even then, they don't really seem to have an appetite for it. Right. So practically speaking, something that was designed in England uh, to be a way of, as you say, Lena, keeping the cash flow moving has actually resulted in people being so exhausted by the process that they end up giving up. Yes. Uh, rather than challenging things, and and has that has that happened around the world? Are we unique here that it's gone a bit nuts, or has that happened in other jurisdictions as well? Does it still cost a fortune? Has uh, have people took advantage of the loopholes and and made these things run a long way? So the the situation in England, broadly speaking, especially after after the uh, um, amendments to the legislation in the early two thousands, generally. Um, when an adjudication has been handed down, it is complied with and the courts are reluctant to allow challenges to, to those adjudications. Uh, there have been challenges to Australian adjudications across yeah. the board and in all sorts of uh, different ways and mm -hmm. often quite creative ways as well. Yes. So that's very different to the, to the UK situation? It is quite different, yeah. Is quite different, and and that's for a variety of reasons. But I, I do again tend to think that the fact that there is such a, a variety of different uh, legislative models here in Australia means, for example, that adjudicators who are operating across different states and territories also need to be aware of the nuances of the legislation under which they themselves are operating. So it's quite easy. I, th I think it's quite difficult for them to fully comply with their own requirements under that as well. So when we're looking at challenges based upon jurisdictional error, which is really the baseline um, approach to saying that there can be a challenge to an adjudication, quite often there will be an, a jurisdictional error, whether it's inadvertent or not, from those from those adjudicators. So are you saying that the inherent problem is the complexity of the individual 
rules themselves for each state and then the interplay between the this the states and the, the you know the fact that you do if you're a national contractor have to work in many different jurisdictions and keep all those balls in the air and, yes. and the rules of each game is is different and so does that mean that the the UK is better placed with their act because of the the simplicity of the system they have but their act is quite similar to the new south wales act isn't exactly it? right yeah, yeah. so yes. what's so the, so what's the difference so the difference is, I think, uh, uh, much... So we're talking about England and Wales. Uh, they, they have, uh, obviously, a much larger uh, economy than we have here in our individual states. So if you've got 60-odd million people uh, compared to five or six million in most of our states and territories, we're talking quite different sizes of economies. But they have only one piece of legislation for that entire uh, jurisdiction. What also it means is that within that jurisdiction, they've got strong support from a unitary technology and construction court, whereas here again, uh, we have state-based Supreme Courts, each of which are seeking in their own way to support the local legislation. But again, you can't expect that there's that same level of support across the board as you would have within a unitary state, as they do have in in England and and indeed, for that matter, in in Malaysia and and, uh, New Zealand. And so this has led to different jurisprudence in different states. That's right. But but I know it's difficult for the adjudicators, but the huge problem is really for the users of the system, right? Right. The the contractors and the subcontractors who are using it because it's so... uh, Particularly if you're operating on a national level, it's... And is it also... I mean, is that to the advantage of the principles? Well, it certainly can be. Yeah. 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 Um, You know, well-informed and well-advised principals will know... Uh, what this minefield looks like and how to avoid uh, the potential hazards of it. I mean, one, one of the things that we've been dealing with uh, within the Society of Construction Law is whether this really is a problem. And, of course, empirical research into whether this level of disparity actually is something that causes inefficiency uh, would be very useful. So it was helpful, I think. Uh, when the society put out its report in 2014 about harmonisation and one of the things that we were able to do as a society is to consult with our members across the country and and very clearly uh, it came through that this isn't simply a matter of being disappointed with there being differences in in the legislation around the country. It was having a real impact. So I, I think that is one of those areas where the society has... Uh, been able to make a real contribution to to the learning on this and, and certainly uh, now um, the society and other organisations dealing with construction law have got the ear of government 